Well, our text this Resurrection Sunday will be in Isaiah's Gospel. We'll be looking at the latter part of chapter 52 and at verse 53. And so I invite you to turn there in your copy of God's Word. As you turn there, just a note, we have been walking through uh, the Gospel of Luke here at Bloomfield Baptist Church, but are pausing in that study today uh, because this is indeed the day that we look to and celebrate the resurrection. We look to and celebrate the resurrection every Lord's Day, but I thought it'd be fitting for us to look in particular at a passage of Scripture that was a foretelling of what we celebrate today. Uh, Isaiah was a prophet of God's people during a time when uh, Israel was not listening to the Word of God, was not heeding the Word of God, and as a result, great consequence would come upon them. And Isaiah was a prophet that God used to tell them and to warn them and also to offer them hope in the midst of their disobedience that the Lord's servant, a suffering servant he describes in here, the Lord's Messiah, the Lord's Christ would indeed come and would atone for the sins of the people. And so 700 years before the the life, the death, and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus, Isaiah spoke this word to the people. And what we read in this passage actually tells us more about what Jesus would endure on the cross than all of the gospel writers combined. And they all are very uh, succinct and limited in what they say about the actual crucifixion. But here in this foretelling, in this prophecy, Isaiah gives us great detail. And so I thought it'd be fitting for us to look at this passage today. And so we're going to look at Isaiah 52, verse 13 through 53, 12. And out of reverence for God's word, if you're able, I want to invite you to stand as I read this passage for us. We stand because this is the holy word of God preserved and handed down to us today. And this is what God says through his prophet, Isaiah. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before them like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. If you would pray with me. Father, we... Thank you that we can come today and we can celebrate the resurrection, but that celebration will be in vain if we've not rightly responded to the resurrection. You tell us in your word, you, you foretell through the prophet Isaiah, centuries before the cross, that this act, that this death would be an atoning sacrifice and that we must believe. And so, Father, I pray that we indeed would believe as we look to your word today. And that belief is only possible through the power of your Holy Spirit. So help us to believe, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. There is a story that has been told throughout centuries in many forms that goes back to a, a poem that was written in 1872 by a man named John Godfrey Sachs. Uh, you may have heard some version of it. It's a, a poem, a story about a, a group of blind men encountering an elephant. And as the story goes, these blind men are all touching different parts of the elephant, and in touching these parts of the elephant, they're trying to discern what it is they've encountered. And so you have a blind man who's feeling the side of the elephant. And he said, well, this must be a wall. Another feeling the tusk of the elephant. And he says, no, I believe this is a spear. Another holding on to the trunk of the elephant and says, no, I believe this is a snake. One puts his arms around the leg and says, no, I believe this must be a tree. Another feels that the flapping of the ear and says, no, this is some sort of fan. Another holding the tail says it must be a rope. And as the story goes on of these blind men trying to describe what they've encountered, none of them, of course, understands it's an elephant. They can only describe the part they've encountered. And so Sachs concludes his poem by saying this, 
And so these men of Indostan disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion, exceedingly stiff and strong, though each was partly in the right and all were in the wrong. So often theologic wars, the disputants I ween, rail on in utter ignorance of what each other mean, and prat about an elephant no one of them has ever seen. Of course, the point of this story was to say that in all of our attempts to describe God and all of our religious efforts to, to portray God, we're, we're all just kind of talking about the same thing. It's really the mantra of a pluralistic culture we live in today. It's what so many still believe today. In fact, they still use this centuries-old illustration to make the point that all of our religions, whether you're a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Mormon or a Christian, that they were all describing ultimately the same thing that none of us can fully describe. My friends, this illustration falls drastically short because as Dr. Albert Moeller, president of Southern Seminary, points out, this illustration, this, this analogy, it, it breaks down if the elephant speaks. <laughs> and so if the elephant says to the blind man, I'm not a tree, I'm not a wall, I'm not a spear, I'm not a snake, I'm an elephant. Well, the whole thing kind of falls apart. And we gather today because God indeed has spoken. He's not left it up to us, a bunch of blind and deaf people, to try to figure things out on our own. No, he has revealed to us through his word the truth of who he is and how we might be reconciled to him. What the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 1.1, long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. And so what you find when you open up the word of God is this continuous telling by God, this speaking by God to help us know how we might be made right with God. And in that speaking and telling, we encounter 700 years before the ministry of our Lord Jesus recorded in the Gospels, a prophet named Isaiah, who is speaking to God's people. He's one of these prophets, and he's describing in great detail what is to come. When the Lord's Messiah comes to seek and to save the lost. And so on this Resurrection Sunday, I want us to consider what we read in this passage because this passage indeed tells us about the Lord's Christ. In fact, when you read in the book of Acts that the growth and the growing of the early church, you find in Acts chapter 8 this encounter that an evangelist named Philip has with a man that we know as the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip is riding along and he encounters this Ethiopian who is reading from the scroll of Isaiah, reading from this very part that we've read this morning. And Philip asks him, do you understand what you're reading? The Ethiopian says, well, how can I understand this unless someone explains it to me? And so he reads from the very passage that we just read about, about this suffering servant that Isaiah is describing. And he asks Philip, Who's he talking about here? Is he talking about himself? Is this Isaiah saying this is him? Or is he talking about another? And Philip clearly points out to him, 
that he's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the Lord's Christ. And from there, he, he shares and explains to him the gospel. And that Ethiopian eunuch puts his faith in Jesus. He repents and he's baptized. And so my prayer for us this morning is that as we walk through this very passage, that the evangelist Philip explained to this Ethiopian man years ago that God would do the same work among us, that he might help us to see indeed this passage points us to Jesus so that we too might repent and might believe. And so we'll begin there with the first point I put in your outline that the first thing that we gather and observe from this passage is that Jesus, our Lord, Jesus, he deserves exaltation and worship. And notice again what we read in chapter 52, verse 13. Isaiah says, Behold my servant. If you are familiar with Isaiah's prophecy, you know that in the book of Isaiah, we have this reference to a suffering servant. These songs related to the suffering servant, and this is the fourth and final one that Isaiah gives us. He's talking about this servant who would save God's people, and so in telling God's people about a judgment that was coming because of their rebellion, he's also saying salvation would come through this suffering servant, through the Lord's Messiah. And he says of him that, that his servant would act wisely and would be high and lifted up, that he would be exalted. And so Isaiah here in this passage that describes the humiliation of Christ, the suffering of Christ, he really begins with the end. And he points us to the glory of Christ, and he points us to how Christ will be exalted and he'll be praised. That's why millions of followers of Jesus have and are and will gather on this day to exalt the name of Jesus. But that exaltation came through suffering. Isaiah here, more than anyone else in God's Word, he describes to us in detail this suffering. He here says in verse 14 of Jesus, his appearance would be so marred, it would be beyond human, human semblance. When we look at the details that God's Word gives us about the cross, it is a, a gory and gruesome thing. And if we're not careful, our response to this can be a response of pity. That, that we come to the cross, that we consider the crucifixion, and, and it invokes within us this, this sadness and this, this pity that we have for Jesus, having to endure what He endured. And that's all right and good. But understand that the prophet Isaiah here is not putting this before us to invoke our pity. He's putting it before us to invoke our praise. Because there was a purpose for which Jesus suffered. He took my place. He took your place on the cross. He paid the debt that we owe for our sin. And he conquered sin and death. Well, we gather today not only because Jesus went to the cross and not only because he died on the cross, but because he conquered death, because the stone was rolled away, because he walked out of the tomb, because he reigns on high today, and that is glorious. And so Isaiah here is putting this before us, not so that we just might feel sad and feel pity, but so that we might praise and not just we, that the nations might praise God. 
that you can look at a, a map and all the time zones, and you can just follow the praise throughout each Lord's day. You can look and see how as the sun rises in different parts of the world, God's people rise and they praise him. And that praise, that choir, it echoes throughout these time zones. And so we today, right now in this moment, as we were singing, as our choir was singing, we're, we're joining in a chorus that started hours before we gathered here, and it'll go on hours after we leave here. Because this, Isaiah says, is the culmination of all these things. The exaltation and the praise. And the praise of the nations. Notice he says it clearly there in verse 15, that there would be this sprinkling of the many nations. Of course, when we think of sprinkling in light of God's word, we understand this to be a reference to that, that atoning sacrifice that's offered for sin. What you find in God's word is that in the history of God's people, God gave his people the law, and as he gave them the law of how they were to obey God, he also gave them this sacrificial system, knowing that they would not perfectly obey, and that they would fall short, that they would sin just as their father Adam had sinned. And in their sin, there would need to be some sort of system, something that would then point them to the Lord's Messiah. And so there's this sacrificial system put in place for the Hebrew people through which for their sin, they would take a, a sacrifice, an animal, and the, the priest would, would slaughter that animal for their sin and would sprinkle the blood of that animal on the altar for their sin as an atoning sacrifice, and yet the, the blood of these sacrifices was not sufficient. It had to be given over and over and over and over again. And yet here we're reminded of God's perfect lamb who was sacrificed once and for all. And this sprinkling of the blood of the lamb was, was for the nations, for, for every tribe and every tongue that now gathers and worships the name of Christ. And Matthew tells us in his gospel that the blood of Jesus was poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And for this truth, we praise God. But you'll notice this, this praise, it, it belongs to this exalted king who would suffer. And, and this is such a, a confounding picture to the world today. But because the world looks at exaltation and, and reverence, and they associate that with, with power, not with humiliation. You, you think about, in our own nation, presidents. You think about the world we live in, and presidents and kings, and, and they are exalted. They are revered, not for their suffering or their humiliation, but for their victory for their power, that they often present themselves even greater than they are. And yet that's so different than the picture we see here. D.A. Carson says it well when he describes it this way, that the kings and rulers and presidents of this fallen world, they exercise their authority out of a deep sense of self-promotion out of a deep sense of wanting to be number one, out of a deep sense of self-preservation, even out of a deep sense of entitlement. 
By contrast, Jesus exercises his authority in such a way as to seek the good of his subjects. And it takes him finally to the cross. And so in our world, we look around and and, and we see leaders with self-promotion, not self-denial. But we see people who focus on self-preservation, not humiliation and suffering. And yet what we find here in Christ and what we find in the one who is worthy of our praise is this name, this, this one that is high and lifted up because he was brought down and made low. And so we, we must ask ourselves in this, why? Why? But why would Christ be brought so low? Why this suffering? Why this humiliation in order for us then to worship and to praise? Why not be like all these leaders in the world who just self-promote and show their power and show their esteem and essentially say to us they are deserving of our praise? And of course, that brings us to the point of all of it, this that there was purpose for which Jesus died. And that purpose was not to invoke our pity. Often in sharing the gospel with people, I'll, I'll ask the question as we talk about the death of Jesus, I'll ask, well, why do you think Jesus had to die? And oftentimes people respond by saying, well, that's, I mean, that's just the ultimate way to show love, isn't it? And I say, well, no, it's not. Valentine's Day rolls around. How do you show your love? You buy some flowers, chocolates. Maybe maybe you finally fix that dripping faucet you've promised for years to fix. You you show your love by, by acts of kindness and by acts of service. And surely we understand that, you know, there's no greater love than laying our life down for someone. But there, there is so much more taking place at the cross of Calvary than some type of supernatural hallmark card from the Father to us. That there is a purpose in suffering. There's a purpose in the crucifixion. And Isaiah makes that purpose very clear. It's the second point there in your outline. Jesus endures these things because he receives the punishment for our sin. Chapter 53, verse 1, is a much-needed reminder for us. Isaiah here, he, he, he presents this exalted king whose blood would be sprinkled for the nations, and then he poses a question to his listeners. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And immediately after that, he asks another question. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And then he gives this picture of how people, they would watch Jesus grow up. They would grow up in the same town. They would, they would see him. They would observe him. And they didn't believe. And why didn't they believe? Well, it's in the questions he asked first. Who has believed? Who has the arm of the Lord revealed? And what God is clearly saying here is that in order to believe, the truth must be revealed and our natural impulse in being given this truth is not to believe. I mean, why doesn't every person, every man, woman, and child on the planet Earth, when they hear the gospel, why don't they immediately believe it? Because we have hearts of unbelief. 
Because our desire is for sin. Because like Adam and Eve in the garden, we rebel against God. We disobey God. And this is our natural inclination. I have four children. I should say my wife and I, we have four children. She was very involved in the process. Ages 16 through 20-something. 23, I believe. She was obviously more involved in all of this than me. We, mainly her, have taught our children many things. We never taught them how to disobey. We have spent a lot of effort and time and money educating them and are still doing this. We never hired a tutor to explain to them how they needed to say no. They figured it out. I'm assuming you figured it out. Because the truth is, it's programmed. It's a heart of disobedience. And it's all well and cute when they're little, and oh no, that's so cute. It's not so cute over time. And it's certainly not cute in our own hearts today. And the reality is, for many of you in this room, you know this because you know what it is to disobey. And and perhaps this morning you're here and you're saying, but I don't want to do that. Why do I keep doing the things I don't want to do? I mean, why is it that we find ourselves in conversations, especially with those we love, when we've messed up, when we've fallen short, saying over and over again, well, I'm not going to do that anymore. Only to do that more. Why is it that we want to do the right thing so often, and yet we find ourselves doing the wrong thing? And it's like a broken record at times, isn't it? Well, we think it's playing pretty good for a while and then it skips and skips and skips (laughs) because there's a flaw in the record. That there's an issue there that needs to be dealt with. In fact, the reality is we need to toss that record out and get a new one. We can't repair that scratch. And what we see on the cross is that Christ's death, it was for purpose, it was for reason, because he died in our place and took the consequence that we deserved. And Isaiah, he outlines it for us so well here. He says, verse 4, that on the cross he he bore our griefs. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. God is making it clear to us in this passage that everything that Jesus endured and received on the cross was because of what we deserve. Because Christ, he knew no sin. Truly God and truly man, he he never sinned. There was not a blemish in him. He was the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. And so this death he died, he died in my place and in yours because we have transgressed and we have sinned, every single one of us. And I don't think I need to give illustrations to convince you that you are a sinner, that I'm a sinner. Because what we see in God's Word is that since the beginning, since the creation, when God created 
in perfection, Adam and Eve. So there, there was a time when man existed on this planet without sin. It was short-lived, but it was there, and it was good, and it was glorious. But, but in that garden, God said to Adam and Eve, you can eat of any tree in this garden. He provided everything they would ever need, but, but he gave them boundaries. He gave them dominion over that garden, but not over all things, But because he, he's God and God alone. He is the only one with dominion over all things. And he said in that garden, you can eat anything here. Don't eat from that tree. He gave a boundary. And what Adam and Eve did is what we've been doing ever since. They, they crossed the boundary. I mean, that's what we do. There's something there. Again, it's an error in us. We, the line is drawn, don't go past this, and everything in us says, well, I just want to see what happens. Or we try to tiptoe so close to the line, <laughs> but we rebel as they rebelled. Makes it clear in verse 6, he says, all we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Well, that's, that's the gospel right there in one verse. That, that we, like sheep, have gone astray. We, we wander off from God. We rebel against the things of God. We disobey God. But, but all that we rightly deserve for our sin, the consequence that we deserve, God lays on Jesus. Now, some hear this, and the response is, well, God is God, and God can do whatever God wants to do. So, 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 so my belief, I believe, I believe in a much, a much more loving God, and in my loving God, no one has to suffer anything. Because my loving God can just simply wipe the slate clean. That's not a just God. And what we see in the scriptures, God does not sacrifice one attribute in order to fulfill another attribute. So God, while being perfect love, is also perfect justice. Because someone has to pay. And we know this. You leave here today, you're on your way to that family gathering you pull up to an intersection and the light turns green. You look both ways. It looks safe. You start to pull out and somebody T-bones you. Thankfully, you're okay. And they're okay. Your truck's not okay. It's crushed. I'm going to assume when you get out of that truck and it's crushed and everybody makes sure they're okay and Clearly, someone here is at fault, that you're not going to look to them and say, you know what, let's just wipe the slate clean. Nobody's going to pay for this, because I love you, and you love me. Now, if they're the person at fault, they'll probably go, okay, yeah, that sounds good, and take off pretty quick, and go to Cracker Barrel, wherever they were going. Truck's still broken. So you take it to the repair shop this week and you pull in and they say, okay, let's look it over. And they look it over and they tally it up. And they come to you and it's got a page there and it's going to be, you know, 
$10,000 to fix it and they hand you the bill. Oh, no, there's, there's no bill. Nobody has to pay. Maybe they go along with, okay, that's okay. Then their parts guy shows up with the parts to fix your car. He says, here's the bill for the parts. And the owner of the repair shop says, oh, you don't understand. In this situation, it's all up. Nobody has to pay. Parts guy goes back to his boss. Where's the money for the parts? Well, special situation here. Everybody loves everybody. Nobody has to pay. You can kind of see where this goes, can't you? Somebody has to pay. Somebody always has to pay. Windstorm came five weeks ago. Your barns are knocked down. Somebody's got to pay. So why is it when we come to the clearest truth that we all know, but when it's related to our own sin, suddenly we get this idea, well, nobody has to pay. God has spoken. And he has clearly said, not only does someone have to pay, he has said, my son, my perfect Son, without spot or blemish, he will pay in your place. And I don't even know the word to describe how insulting it must be for us, the creation, to say to the creator, oh, no, 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 that's not how it works. When our sinless Savior took on all that is described here for us, that the arrogance and the pride of our hearts to look to this truth and say, oh, that's, that's not needed. It's needed. And it's satisfied. In Christ and in Christ alone, verse 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And here's the good news of the gospel. It satisfied God. It paid the debt for our sin. And so if the death of Jesus on the cross was good enough for God, why isn't it good enough for so many of us? And I think it's because we're not listening. We're not looking to see because the clear truth of this passage, and we'll bring it home here, point three, is that God declares us righteous through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Isaiah, he, he chronicles this. He keeps going on about the cross. He, he describes Jesus as a lamb being led to the slaughter. Verse 7, verse 8, that he's cut off from the land of the living, that he's stricken for our transgressions. He, he reiterates over and over again how Jesus was innocent, how he deserved none of this. He never spoke a lie. He was completely innocent. And yet, verse 10, Christ put Christ was put on the cross by the Father. Why? Because this was the Father's will. And this was the Father's plan from the beginning. That this is what he tells Adam and Eve and the serpent in the garden when they sin. He says, the substitute's coming. The Messiah's going to come and, and he is going to receive what you deserve for what you did. 
And so through this, Jesus and Jesus alone can declare us righteous because on the cross, he, he takes our guilt and our burden and our debt and he pays it in full so that when we might, might then receive his righteousness, he, he takes what he did not deserve so that we can receive what we do not deserve. That <laughs> This makes no sense when you add it up. That this isn't the way our world functions. Well, I hope they get what they deserve. So thankful God doesn't say that to us. Because when God points the finger, he points it to the cross. And there Jesus receives what we deserve so that we might praise and worship him and glorify him. And sing words like we've sang today. This invitation to come behold a wondrous mystery. Christ the Lord upon the tree. And the stead of ruined sinners, he hangs the lamb in victory. Friends, see the price of our redemption. See the Father's plan unfold bringing many sons to glory, grace unmeasured, love untold. Jesus died and Jesus rose so that we too might rise and walk in the newness of life so that Jesus' righteousness might cover us. It, it is a glorious and wonderful truth. And the question is today, how have we, how will we respond to this truth? Because for some, even when they hear it, the response is unbelief. It's just too easy. Too simple. Surely I have to do something here. And so we look around the world and we see religious vows and spirituality and effort after effort. Maybe for you today, coming here is part of that. You made some deal with God long ago. Well, I'll, I'll come to church on Easter and Christmas and or maybe not a deal with God, maybe a deal with your mother. I mean, I'll appease you. I'll appease God. I'll, I'll do this, and I'll do this, and I'll do this, and, and that'll make it right. God says, it doesn't work that way. It's actually simpler than that. All you need to do today is die to yourself. <laughs> turn from your sin, to trust in Jesus who indeed paid it all, to repent and to believe. And yet for so many, going back to Isaiah's question, we, we, we've heard but we haven't believed. Why? Because our, our sinful hearts feel like we can figure out a better way than what God has already provided. The death of Jesus, it satisfied God, but it doesn't satisfy us. But for others of us, you have heard and you have believed because God has revealed. And so for us who have repented and have believed, what a glorious day this is. Is there anything better than this day? That, that all our sin, it was paid for. Christ's righteousness has been counted to us because our sinless Savior died, our sinful soul is counted free. And that is a glorious thing. And this is a truth worthy of our worship.
And so we're going to do that very thing now as we offer a time of response. And for those who have received this truth and friends, worship and praise and thank God for this glorious day. But if you're here with us on this Resurrection Sunday, on this Easter day, and you've yet to respond to the gospel truth, then I would compel you and invite you today to consider why haven't you responded? And if you find within you that the reason you have responded is because you, you just don't believe, then my prayer for you is that God indeed in this day would give you a heart of belief, that he would reveal the truth to you, that you too might respond and repent and worship and praise the one who is worthy of all our worship and praise. So let's stand together and worship and praise him now. If you would stand as I pray for us.